Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, private investor. Financial institutions spend a lot of money on the data and analytics needed to assess the credit worthiness of their customers. In fact, the global financial analytics market was valued at $7.6 billion in 2020 and is projected to reach $19.8 billion by 2030. The cost and unavailability of credit data make financial institutions overly conservative, often denying services to otherwise potentially valuable customers, especially small and medium-sized businesses. Lenders often have transactions and payments data that feed into underwriting models, but it is often not in a usable format because they don't have the in-house engineering skills to build the necessary pipelines to acquire, process, and enhance data. My guest today is Nare Vardani, co-founder and CEO, Entropy, spelled with a capital letter N, a play on the word entropy, used in thermodynamics modeling. The word itself is derived from the Greek word entropia, which means transformation. The name for the company was chosen by co-founder and CTO Ilya Zachenko, who has a PhD in theoretical physics. Together, they want to make financial transactions and payments data cheaper and more accessible. Entropy positions itself as the most accurate financial data standardization and enrichment API, which uses large language models, LLMs, to be able to reconcile any data source. Their goal is to help humans and machines understand how money moves. Within milliseconds, their API just parses and cleans payment data. This means diverse systems and algorithms can qualify anyone for credit much faster and fairly using their financial behavior and potential. The company has grown 400% over the past year, with hundreds of customers in the US working with Plaid, Arculus, Yapoli, and other financial data companies. It has raised $14 million today from top-notch investors, Lakestar, QED Investors, and January Ventures, as well as prominent executives from Twilio, Ramp, MoonPay, and ComplyAdvantage. Nare's natural talent, persistence, and entrepreneurial grit traces back to her beginnings growing up in Armenia, a small country in the Southern Caucasus with a history of turmoil. After graduating with a degree in international relations from the University College in London, she had the opportunity to work on financial inclusion and poverty reduction at the United Nations. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I grew up in Armenia. It's a small country in the Southern Caucasus which has been heavily under Russian influence since the collapse of the Soviet Union, before it was a part of the Soviet Union. So my parents, my grandma, even grandparents, grew up and got a very, very Soviet education. And all of them speak Russian, as well as Armenian. I was also brought up watching Russian cartoons and Armenian cartoons and hearing about stories, the horrors, and also the good parts of, of living in that big country. But when I was born, it was just the year 91, when the union collapsed and all the countries that were part of it emerged as independent countries. I'm telling it as a historical context because I think it's very important because it really shapes who you are and what matters to you and what doesn't. And yeah, we were an independent country a couple months in. I actually still have a birth certificate that has Soviet Union on it, but then a couple months later, I got an Armenian document. And and then citizenship, etc. And then the war started with a neighboring country for disputed territory, which was pretty much very, very, very harsh for everyone in both countries. And we were in a blockade, no electricity, no food supplies. 
as a kid, I didn't know what was going on. It was pretty much a game. My parents used to do everything possible. So both myself and my brother didn't have to realize that this is not how things are supposed to be. And we used to get excited when we got light. We would have electricity, let's say, like one or two hours a day. And then we could do a bunch of things when that was the case. Yeah. Funny, I've been telling this story here and there quite a few times now. And it's extra weird talking about it right now because of what's going on in the world in general. And it seems like it's been so many years, but not much has changed. And so many people are suffering. And we're back at square one with wars and blockades and yeah all the suffering so very very sad about it but but that's pretty much what what shaped me in my early years and it was an interesting time and and I lived in Armenia till I was 17 18 and then I left so lots to unpack here and certainly sounds like it was definitely to your point earlier these types of experiences even though you don't necessarily grasp the full gravity and the importance. And by the way, kudos to your parents for sheltering you in what appears to be a very clever way, right? From not creating any negative sentiment from a very, very dire situation and trying to create some entertainment out of a very difficult situation. So kudos to them. But certainly shape your outlook and probably determination, right? And we'll get to it. The entrepreneurial journey is one of the hardest things people will do professionally. And so having the ability to sustain extended periods of hardship, right? Whether it's when you're building a business, it's mostly psychological, right? Hopefully there's no physical hardship. But did that, do you feel like this is a big pillar of who you are as a person and your persistence? I think so. I think resilience definitely is a quality that I would say is a superpower for me. And that definitely comes from that upbringing. I think you are more prone to taking risks and evaluating downside versus upside in a slightly different way than somebody who didn't have those experiences growing up. So yes, definitely. And being an entrepreneur takes a certain kind of resilience because since the very beginning till I think even when you have a pretty big company and it's very successful, there's so many things that are always going wrong. It's almost like the world telling you that you're doing the wrong thing. So you have to have that resilience and conviction, problem solving altogether to be able to overcome those. And yeah, I think there's no wonder that there's so many immigrants who are entrepreneurs, just because they have some of those qualities baked in. That's how they're used to living their lives. And they also know that if you lose things and you have to go back to square one, you can still do it. You can get up and go and try again. And Having that reassurance helps you try things, which is what entrepreneurship is all about. That is so true. And I'll tie it to some of my own personal experience. But what you just said really resonates with me because it's interesting. Even, you know, I have friends who came from very little and they built an incredibly successful life. And I've seen their risk aversion actually increase as they've become more successful. And much more financially stable. In some cases, it's not even stability and they, they've become very affluent and very successful. And it's interesting to me because to your point earlier, at the end of the day, subject to other constraints, as literally as long as you're breathing and you have an ounce of grit and intelligence, you could achieve and do a lot of things. And I think for me, especially both sides of my family, 
My great-grandmother had to flee Russia in the 1930s and brought her kids with her and had to rebuild a life at that time. And similarly, on, on my father's side, there's a lot of moving around, right? And I think it's almost like you have this DNA that develops, and I use it in quotes, and the ability to think about, okay, to think about risk very differently. And that's why I like your comment, because look, on some level, I think the average person and their own risk tolerance is just incompatible with starting businesses. It's just the reality of it, right? It takes a certain kind. Either you really don't have a lot of financial downside, and it's also something that's overlooked. What I find in different profiles, I either find people who, it's not that they work any less, they work really hard, but they have very limited financial downside. When we look at the backgrounds of a, even an Elon Musk or a Bill Gates, these were individuals who had a lot of financial backing right when they went on and built their initial businesses. But I also know entrepreneurs who literally come from nothing or just didn't have much and it's all grit and it's all their own doing. And I'm not taking merit away from any of those. I'm just saying in both cases, it takes an abnormal level of risk assessment and tolerance. That's definitely the case. So I think you're absolutely right. So you talk about your experience as a kid, but once you actually have any notion of what's going on, how was teenagehood for you in that environment before you left? It was pretty normal. I would say that the years when I was a teenager, things stabilized a little bit and the country was recovering and there was a ceasefire in 94, although the problem wasn't solved, but there was no active war. So we were building, the economy was rising. So that was an interesting time. There was still this collective sense that there's always a threat from the borders and we have to be united and you have to make a difference and all of that, which definitely had an impact. I remember because Armenia is a pretty small country and has a lot of geopolitical dependencies, I always wanted to be involved in international relations and represent my country and make a difference talking to representatives of other countries. I thought that was the biggest impact I could ever do. And yeah, that's what my teenage years were about. I went to university. I did, although I loved maths, actually. I decided to do international relations to be able to go to the School of Diplomacy by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and have a career at the United Nations. That was what I thought was the peak of achievement and what I should have done for my country, for myself, you know, for my career. And that's what I went to do. I was involved in a lot of different, or we had a British parliamentary debate club at university. We had different public policy groups lobbying. So yeah, very much involved in all of that stuff and very far away from uh, technology and starting businesses until much later in life, until I got to my 20s. So yeah, it was interesting. If you had to ask me back then what I would be doing right now, I would I would probably never guess. And to your point about resilience and backgrounds of people, I do think that everybody, it's probably schools and education, no matter where you leave, is programmed in a way that there's a certain path you have to do well at school and then you go to university or you do an apprenticeship and then you get a job and that's the, the thing to do. I wish we were told as kids that we could do anything. It's like a widely open world of things. And if we pick something and it doesn't work out, we could try again and again. I think it's pretty powerful to know that 
so yeah, I was an international relations graduate in my teens and I went to uni pretty early and yeah, when I was 18, I was already working um, for the UN. So was that local or that you moved away? First locally. And then I went to New York and Geneva and I was working there for a bit, but very quickly I decided that that's not something I want to do or want to continue doing. It definitely wasn't what I thought it would be and very slow, very bureaucratic. I didn't see any real growth possibilities as a person. And you had to be there for 20 plus years and make small steps in a career to get somewhere. So yeah, wasn't my cup of tea. So I decided to change things. And I went to a master's degree at University College London. And uh, I thought I'd figure things out from there. So yeah. So I always like to think about what prepares one for their entrepreneurial journey. And so one of the things you mentioned, so you said you weren't averse to math and sciences, but chose a different path. It seems really one of the main motivation was to extract yourself from that environment and see different horizons and different things. But when it boils down to it, so we talked about the resilience part, but what do you think makes you a good fit for what you're doing now? I would say less from, I would say that this overall skill set of the entrepreneur, I think we elaborated on that. But as far as the subject matter expertise, like how did you develop the skills and understanding of what you're, again, presumably what you're building right now is obviously on the bleeding edge of innovation, right? So certainly you are probably also with your team and people in your space, like learning as you go, right? That's the beauty of being on the bleeding edge. But what prepared you and how did you get first acquainted with the technical concepts behind the venture? Yeah, it's a lot of learning and you have to be really humble. I was somebody at school and university who found humanities super easy and it was always like easy to compete there and so on. And it's very comfortable. You get to a point where you think, okay, I think I've got this, especially when you're younger. And then when I decided that I'm not going to go back to that career anymore. I don't want to go back to Armenia to figure stuff out. And I have to get a visa to stay in the country. I think I can start a business. I have a lot of ideas that I think that could, very, very naively, obviously, but you have those thoughts when you're thinking and contemplating about first sort of business or venture. I knew that there's this massive gap. The gap was to build things from scratch. You have superpowers now. You have technology and you have the internet. Not only you can build things from scratch, but you can also access people. And you don't need permission from anybody or anyone. You don't need any hierarchies. You just need to know how these things work. But I didn't know how they work. So obviously, I could find people who were technical and start working with them. But to even gain some respect and know what I was talking about and have those conversations, you still need to do some learning. So I went back to the basics. I did a bunch of courses on my own and starting from very basic code camp programming, all of that, going into more machine learning, AI, Coursera, the Andrew Ann course was definitely like a challenge. And then that was like step one. And then putting yourself in environments where there are people who are much better than you at uh, those subjects, that's, again, humbling, but necessary. And as I started doing that, thankfully, UCL is a university with a very strong engineering department and DeepMind which was later acquired by Google, was a UCL group, part of UCL engineering and the artificial intelligence department. And then they spun out and were obviously 
doing their own thing and they had a ton of success and then Google bought them. But that sort of heritage was important because there were a lot of people who are the best at what they do and around me at that time when I was at university. So that was a big push. And then it's taken a long time to learn and still learning. I always say to my team, we have a very technical team. 80% of the company are engineers, machine learning engineers, physics, PhDs, and so on. And I love just listening to them sometimes. And being able to be a part of the conversation is definitely a privilege. And the more you do that, the better you become. So yeah, it's a constant, constant journey. And the one thing I know is you have to be very self-critical to get there because it's there's a bunch of people who think they're experts and they're not. So not to fall into that trap, you have to constantly pinch yourself and surround yourself with the right people. Yeah, agreed. And the truth is, in your role, you shouldn't actually go as deep as, let's say, some of the more technical contributors within your team and your staff, because that inevitably gets in the way of your ability to think broadly, to think cross-sectionally, and to be able to run the business. And the role of a CEO really is you got to set the strategy, you've got to hire and retain the executives, and indirectly the people who work for those executives to execute the strategy. And then that needs to deliver financial results to stakeholders, of which as a founder CEO, you are a significant shareholder. So you want to see a tremendous amount of return for the risk you're taking. So being on some level too narrow can get in the way of that, but very impressive that you have this drive to continuously be develop credibility, but to also develop an understanding. I truly think as a CEO, especially in the early days, or at least in that initial beachhead capture and proving product market fit and going from zero to 10 million in revenues, a CEO needs to have credibility in the meeting room when they're talking, whether it's to customers, first and foremost, to investors have the credibility. And so that constant drive that you have to continue iterating towards learning and your quest for knowledge is very important. So talk to me a little bit about how your assessment of the opportunity and the potential for what you're currently building, how did that come about? It was definitely not straightforward in the journey. I had a previous experience a little bit at the UN working with financial inclusion. So I knew that. And also, like to be fair, growing up in Armenia, access to capital and money and the way we just work with financial services and even like credit scores, like in a lot of countries, they're not available or it's not the same as in the developed world. So I had some of that perspective. And I also knew as an immigrant that when you come to a new country, there's no data on you. You practically cannot do anything, even to rent an apartment in the US and in the UK and majority of the developed world. You have to get references and sometimes a guarantor. You have to pay up front for six months because there's no data on you. So the problem from that perspective was vaguely familiar just from personal experiences. And my co-founder, Ilya, he'd worked on optimization problems at Microsoft Research and then had his own company doing electricity optimization with data for data centers. And from a technical perspective, he had a view that there was a time where 
now the problem with financial data and access to that data could solve all of these issues further up the stack. So yeah, with that insight, we decided to get together and do something, but it was very vague. So the real problem and the real solution came about much later. We had a semi-proposition. We were going to banks and FIs and saying, hey, you have a lot of data. This other bank has data too. What if we combine those data sets and you could train models and then understand consumers and businesses better? And we'll provide you with some privacy-preserving tools so that there's no sensitivity around data. That was our first proposition. We thought, oh, if all the institutions got together and shared their data and you could train models on that data, then a bunch of the problems would be solved. Then we started talking to the market and it turned out there was some truth to that gut feeling and nudge. However, the quality of the data, the fragmentation of it, how many different formats it comes in, that was the real issue. And financial services are very slow, low NPS industry. And there's a reason for that because operating an FI is expensive and slow too. You need a lot of people. There's a lot of compliance. There's a lot of documents. So unless you solve the back office, it's really hard to truly innovate in the space. And we decided to get on a journey and solve something that is pretty unsexy because we don't build something that consumers know of, but they will definitely interact with it and with money products that would be powered by us. So so it sounds like you gelled with someone in a journey. So you have a co-founder. Are there any more co-founders in the adventure? Or is it pretty much you guys? It's, yeah, it's the two of us. I met my co-founder when he was doing um, another startup. Was, he was building algorithms to optimize electricity usage of data centers. And we decided to get together. It was very hard to get what he was doing back then off the ground because everybody was moving to the cloud and there are very few companies who were applying this type of tech to private data centers. And yeah, we became friends first. We had similar backgrounds when he grew up in Russia and then moved to Norway and had lived between US and Zurich, also in Switzerland. So there were a lot of similarities and, and we decided to get together and do this. That's great. And what would you say when you think about the relationship there, because it's so essential, right? Again, you're going to traverse periods of intensity, both on the highs and the lows. There is a requirement to have the ability to go through different forks in the road and make good decisions. But also a principle that I've always upheld, whether I look at teams or when I try to get anything off the ground, is looking at the complementarity looking at highly non-overlapping skills. I'm a big fan of psychometric tests, very important to try to assess what is the fit, how is everyone going to behave in a variety of different situations. What do you think makes you guys a good pair to navigate this journey? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think there are a lot of resources about how to start a business. There's way less resources about how to work with someone from the ground up and co-founder relationships and it's tough there's a lot of nuance to it i think there's definitely you hit the nail on the head there's definitely two aspects one is obviously trust and personal rapport are you are you able to survive seeing this person so many hours in a day are you do you trust each other because you go through so many highs and lows and that trust is fundamental do you like spending time with them all of that is important i would say like what is more important because Things get very bad when, regardless of how much you like each other, when the startup is not going well. So 
labor productivity is definitely a term that we first encountered. It came to us via one of our first annual investors, but like how productive are you together into producing results? And complementarity of skills comes into that, right? And sometimes it doesn't mean necessarily finding product market fit, right? But at the very, very beginning, you just need to generate enough friction to get enough information to do the next thing, right? So if it takes you ages to produce something because you're discussing too long or you have the same skill and you need somebody else or other reasons, then no matter if you're the best friends in the world, it's not going to work. And the opposite is true as well. If you're super, super productive, maybe the friendship aspect matters a little bit less because the startup is moving and movement is everything. Even getting to like a realization that you're not doing the right thing is super important and doing that quickly, right? So I would say that productivity is the most important thing. And as soon as you get into a personal domain, trust domain and move away from figuring out how good you are together in running this business and getting results, then it becomes tricky and complicated and there's a lot of drama. Agreed. Agreed. So if you were going to boil it down right now, you talk to someone uninformed, they've really barely heard of entropy and you're trying to explain to them what the current thesis is, right? It's like, if you think in terms of purpose, you had a problem solution and you started alluding to like the transition and explaining how you arrived at it. And I want to know like how you pitch it today when you're explaining it. And then I want to get an idea from you as to, we could talk about very generic terms, what the opportunity size is, but I want to hear your thoughts on like why you thought that now was the right time to go after it. And how do you really quantify the opportunity for the business? Yeah, that's a good question. To be concise, because we could talk about it forever, and it's definitely what I do the majority of my day job too, is, well, first of all, what we do at Entropy, we're trying to teach computers to understand financial data like humans or at a superhuman accuracy, if we can push it to that. And financial data can come from different sources. It can be transactions when you pay somebody by credit cards, ACH, debit. It can be invoices when a company receives an invoice or let's say you're invoicing someone as a freelancer, receipts, accounting information, you know, everything that your accountant gets from your bookkeeper to be able to file taxes. All of that is financial information. It's essentially how do you interact with money and how money moves from point A to point B. It's captured in so many different ways. So we teach machines we give them the ability to understand this data, break it down and make it usable. It's not usable today because of sources, formats, silos, languages, currencies, borders, and all the different parties that are involved. Why I think it's the best time, it's because until now, you had to solve this problem very, very vertically and in a narrow way. So you could get a system that was very, very good at understanding receipts from square merchants. And then you could get another system that could be good at understanding invoices and then another system dealing with aggregated data and so on and so forth. There was never anything that could do this regardless of source format, like universally and be good at generalizing. Why this matters is because all of the narrow systems 
they have the 80-20 issue. They can be good 80% of the time and then 20% of the time they totally break and the maintenance is a lot and you still need a bunch of human in the loop. So it is efficient, but not super efficient or what you would expect those systems to do. And a general system is much more powerful. It can basically cover this 20% of the long tail and the edge cases because it applies more general reasoning and you don't need to have seen an exact data type to be able to understand it and parse it. So because of where language models are and even were a couple of years ago, we thought it's the perfect time to solve this problem in a horizontal way and to build entropy as a platform that would power any financial product, both the ones that exist today from lending to credit cards to things that will exist tomorrow, right? There's all sorts of new things being created in this world and how we interact with money. So yeah, we want to make sure this platform that unifies the data, standardizes it, makes it usable, can enable that too. And in terms of the opportunity, I think there is so much. I look at the fintechs and neobanks that were created in the last 10 years. And a lot of them started with very basic sentiment of people don't like their bank. They have a poor experience with their bank. So let's create something that's not a bank or doesn't treat you as a bank, is better, has a better UI, has a better customer service. And a lot of companies were created from this premise or even like, let's go to underbanked people and try to bank them because the banks don't even want to go near them. And a lot of cash was raised. And some of them are very successful and actually deliver great experiences. But the more successful they get and the more they scale, the more they become similar to a bank. And they have to be a bank because there's no way around. There's the compliance, the heavy back office, the operational risk, the underwriting risk, like everything that you have to do. So unless you make the back end of banking and financial services a lot more efficient and automated, it's very hard to create better customer experiences to completely remove fees. I know that from the changing in rates and the environment that we've been in the last year or so, um, a bunch of neobanks have started charging fees, although their whole premise was not to do that, not to ever be the bank who does it, right? Just because it's there's no way around. Or some startups have even gone back and said, okay, we were built to serve small, medium business, but now we're actually moving away from small, medium business because it's not profitable. That's exactly where banks were, right? That's why they weren't touching that segment. So to make it profitable and to make a change, you have to change the back end. And that's what we are working on. And I think the opportunity is real, not only in the US, but also in the emerging economies, because in the US and majority of Europe, you have to replace an existing system, a legacy system that kind of works with something that's more efficient. In the rest of the world, often there's nothing, right? You have to build that whole stack from scratch. And it's very exciting. Yeah, it, it presents actually, I think both present tremendous opportunities for what you're building. And it, so I take a step back and just for a little context as well, right? It, when it comes to data and especially financial data, someone who's consumed large quantities of them over my career to build systematic trading systems, I know firsthand that the task of building any application that uses, that makes use of data, so much of the effort is around not only making sense of the data, but preparing it in order for it to be data that can be exploited, right? And whether it's, again, for application purposes, to train models, to then make 
decisions. In our case, it was trading decisions. It could be things like fraud detection and payments, for example. It's like there's a slew of applications and uses that require data to be prepared and structured in such a way that it can actually be acted upon, right? Yes. And that's such an essential need. And I would say in terms of the potential, I always like stories that are very much at the heart of it, a cost story and an efficiency story, because it's very hard in financial services. Look, if you think about financial services as a sector and growth, it's essentially a levered play on GDP growth. In other words, the top line banks and financial services institutions are at most going to be a levered play on GDP, right? So in that sense, what matters to financial services institutions is really they know how to make money. There aren't 20 different ways to make money. I mean, you could tag on new services. You can approach customers from a different angle. You could do it through embedded finance and things like that. But the core banking primitives, right, of storing money, moving money around, lending money, transferring risk, so on and so forth, they are there. They're well anchored. There's very well-known business models around it. Think about asset management, right? No one sits in a room and tries to decide what the business model of asset management is, right? It's an agreed upon standard that certain types of fees that have evolved over the years and that people agree upon. There's some supply and demand dynamic. By and large, it's very well anchored. So anything you can throw in, in financial services, that is a cost story, right? An improvement on the cost side is going to be incredibly compelling. And back to the potential also, if you think about the percentage of unbanked and underbanked adults across major global regions, right? That in and of itself, I think, creates a very strong underpinning for any B2B fintech software infrastructure, right? Because of that overarching capacity that's still built into the market. So that's incredibly compelling. So how was it to start the business? I mean, did you go out and how did you go about getting the right resources? Did you think about bootstrapping it initially? It sounds like there's a heavy R&D component. So that's always a little bit harder to bootstrap, especially if you're going to be selling to institutional customers or enterprise customers. What was your thinking along the lines of like resourcing the business initially, both in terms of financial and human capital? Yeah, so we knew from the ground up that we would need GPUs, which are expensive, and humans who could train models who are also expensive to get this off the ground and to even prove that something works. So it wasn't the perfect business to bootstrap. We knew we would need venture funding. And what we did, though, before we even went and had conversations with investors, we had like a first version of uh, model working and an API wrapped around it. And, and we could have demonstration with your own statement or transaction data where you would input your transactions and would output like clean categorized view. And that was like super efficient because often you can talk about a vision, but unless people see a product working in reality, it's very hard to connect the dots. So we definitely invested in that and we spent quite a few months building that out and also building a list of customers and people who would be willing to use it. And the way we raised our round from QED Investors was a very fintech focused fund. I mean, the founders, Nigel Norris, who started Capital One and 
really revolutionized credit card business and financial services in, in many ways in the United States. So to have the credibility, we actually went to their portfolio companies and we built the case that they would be using us if this was fully working and they were willing to sign up and they had the problem and the need and they'd be paying us. And yes, once that was there, then we did raise seed round of 3.2 million and started to hire people to build the stack and start to prove our hypothesis. So you had a concerted effort to, so did you identify the investors that you wanted to go after and then go after their customers to start essentially creating some initial reference there or intentional or hypothetical reference? Or did it happen organically that the customers you were talking to or potential customers you were talking to, many of them happen to be funded, in this case, by QED? It was actually both. So one of the first people, yeah, it's quite funny. One of the first people we spoke to was one of the co-founders at Ramp, which is now one of the biggest success stories in fintech, but just also in general in, in technology. But they were just getting started. So Kareem, their CTO, he was one of the first people we talked to as a potential customer. And we were early stage and they were early stage, although they had previous experience and Kareem had sold his previous company with his co-founder to Capital One. And they had pitched to QED and he knew them very, very well. And so when we started to talk about entropy, he asked us if we're fundraising and then he offered to introduce us to QED because he thought they are experts and they're the right people to speak to, both from more introductions to more fintech's perspective, but also giving us our initial round of funding. So yeah, he made that intro and then we got to know them and their portfolio was the perfect ground to get feedback, get customers. So it worked organically and perfectly from there. Yeah. And then I'm very, very thankful, actually, Kareem. And there's a handful of people in the very, very beginning who just had the belief in what we were doing, were super, super generous with their time and this give first attitude. That was transformational because we didn't know many people. We weren't from the scene. We hadn't worked in financial services before, neither of us. So it was quite a jump and it only worked out because of them and the introductions that they made and the leap of faith. So. How was the process of getting onboarded with such a prominent name investor? I mean, I think of QED as an incredibly rigorous, thoughtful investment firm, right? And they really exude that discipline, right? That intellectual discipline that probably extends in the portfolio management as well. How has it been having investors on your cap table, managing that relationship, interacting with them? What's been the dynamic at this stage? They're operators and they're operators who've been in the field for a while. So I think it really, really matters because they understand what it takes and they understand the nuance of the market. So that's definitely been very helpful. They're also extremely, I think it comes from Nigel and, and the culture in general, very, very down to earth, founder focused and friendly and being founder friendly can mean different things. Sometimes it's offering good terms on a term sheet. That's what many people think founder-friendly is, you know, giving you a better valuation and so on. But the real reality of being founder-friendly is backing you when things are not going how you think they should be going, is 
helping out with the right exact team, the right hires at the right time, or even just acknowledging how tough the journey is and being a good listener. That also can mean being founder friendly. So I would say they're definitely extremely founder friendly investors from that perspective. And I would recommend anybody to work with them. And they've also seen a lot and know a lot and they can pattern match at this point in terms of financial services. And they're big believers and have a conviction about the overall impact this technology is going to make. So that's great. Also, like there's so many different people in terms of partnership and you don't just get one partner, but you get access to all of them, which has been very useful for us, for sure. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great framework uh, to be able to thrive into from within. I'd say, you know, the thoughts, a few thoughts on that. I think in an era of easy or easier money, because one thing that people tend to forget is interest rates and the overall macro environment has just reverted back to a more historically normed set of parameters. And the environment we were in the last 15 years was really both unsustainable and unrealistic from that standpoint. And so in an era of easier money, this concept of founder friendliness, to your point, has translated into, again, higher valuations, friendlier investor terms, investor rights, information rights, and so on and so forth. And I think something that got lost along the way, and again, it only takes, again, following some of the principles at QED, because I follow them on Twitter and I, I know they put forth is to keep that discipline, right? That operator discipline, because money is not the only part of the equation here, right? It's like people being, picking up the phone when things aren't going according to the plan is almost as if not more important. Because as an investor, you may not be able to, let's say if your company is facing some operational or financial constraints, it may not be in a position to fund you, but they may be able to go find the people who will, the right partners, right? And so they might be able to find you your next customer that is going to get you out of this rut that you're in. And so that oftentimes gets omitted and forgotten because money came easy. And I like to say, as an investor, your customers really are your LPs, right? I mean, that should never be forgotten, right? At the end of the day, if you're a venture fund, if you're a private equity fund, if you're a hedge fund, your customers are your LPs. There's make no mistake, right? And those are the people paying you for returns on capital. I don't think founders are your customers, but if you do want to create better risk-adjusted outcomes, you need to take an approach that's more than just doling out capital because inevitably a big part of your alpha is going to be your ability to contribute and augment the teams selectively when they need it. So if you think about the phase that you're in right now, who are, so you obviously started by lining up who were potential customers, potential beachheads. You're in the process of conquering additional beachheads. Who are your main target customers and markets at this point in time? You know, when you wake up in the morning and when you guys sit down as an executive team, how do you think about your go-to-market roadmap right now? And what are the dependencies and counterparties along the way? Yeah, it's a good question. And we definitely think a lot about it because especially, I think if you're building something abroad, on the one hand, it can sound fascinating from like a pitch perspective and it looks good 
fundraising deck, but the reality is building go-to-market that is too broad is very hard from day one. The people who do it in a focused way with a small niche and then expand have traditionally been more successful. So for us, there's two things that matter. One is we're a data company and as most data and machine learning companies, getting as much data as possible and getting access to as diverse data sets as possible that are unique and interesting is one of the most important longer term indicators and how successful we're going to be. So we really optimize these days for volumes. Early days, we worked a lot with fintechs, and those are the majority of our customers are still fintechs. They were growing very fast, especially in the 21, 22, that cycle. There's a lot of venture money, and they were solving problems and growing and spending money on growth, and we would see those volumes, and they were easy to work with. We were small, they were small, and adopted technology quickly. Right now, as I look at the market, we still do work with fintechs, and we always will. New companies, existing ones. However, we want to be also in as many one-to-many channels as possible. So any companies who are already infrastructure layers that work with the banks and command a lot of volumes. Aggregators, we announced a few partnerships and we're going to announce some more banking as a service providers, core banking players who are like the legacy software for the banks, the Jack Henry's of the world and FIS and Fiserv's payments companies, all of those that are like either networks themselves and can provide and give us access to this one-to-many data flows, they're extremely, extremely interesting to us at this stage of the business. And they're also like a great place to start building out one or two use cases and then further expanding. I also think that traditionally it's been very, very hard to sell to the banks. And I do think now is kind of the perfect time. It's still going to, some people are going to figure it out. Others are not, but there is a lot of appetite for change. And especially with new technology coming and the threats from competition and not being able to stay afloat or be operationally efficient, it's definitely scary. So I think there's an appetite for adoption and they do realize that. And yeah, there's a great opportunity to be able to sell to them. What do you think? So banks is obviously a very broad category, right? And there's tier one banks, systemically important institutions. And then there's the long tail, right? We saw how that played out with the duration shock earlier this year. And I'm actually interested in hearing your thoughts about, as it relates to what you're building, the relevance to smaller middle market banks, community banks, Is that an audience that's ultimately relevant as a direct strategy for what you're providing? Or do you think that you're embedded in broader stacks that are being sold to those banks? Right. So I understand how you're going to get into, if you are, you get into the right setup with a large bank. That's a high end enterprise sales conversation. There's many, many ramifications many different permutations of how this can be used, right? But for community banks and middle market banks, I'm interested in your thoughts about what is the go-to-market there? Is it direct or indirect? I think we're in the process of discovering that with community banks, they don't have as many resources, right? And there's only a few conversations that 
they can afford having. And at the same time, they have a similar compliance and regulatory burden as the bigger banks, etc., which is also very costly. So from that perspective, I think the impact on the community banks can be profound, right? From like automating the back office, making it easier for them to be efficient, fast, cheap. That's great. So it's a great value add. But from the perspective of selling to them, I think we're still trying to go via providers that they already buy from and that already have a foot in the door, just because I don't think they have the bandwidth to work with startups, or at least it's very hard to get bandwidth. It's very hard to get consensus. But yeah, so right now we are trying to be embedded and get in with other solutions altogether so they don't have to make too many decisions, which they cannot afford. And economically as well, the budgets are very, very different. So yeah, um, I think that's the strategy for now. But there's definitely an opportunity because those banks are filling in gaps that need to be filled. And a lot of them are actually really pushing to transform and doing a great job. So supporting them is important. It definitely is. And if you think about this is going to tie into how you think about pricing and value add and how you thought about that in going to market. And I'm sure it's evolved over time and will continue to. But back to this and to close on this, this topic of large versus the long tail of banks, especially here in the US where that's a very, very acute manifestation, right? You've got thousands of community banks that have captive niche audiences that in, in aggregate are very valuable. The key for them is in an era of technology is to stay relevant, right? We all know that the relationship aspect is something that should not be discounted. But how do you scale across a vast number of touch points? I mean, it is the, the old adage of how do you go to market efficiently once you start? There's still enterprise sales per se, but they're really the equivalent of that long SMB tail in terms of the cost of sale, the cost of that many touch points that you have to go out and harvest and convince, maybe there are better mechanisms through embedding, working with, I almost think that on some level, potentially the way banking is going to evolve is some of the larger players are going to become technology providers to the smaller ones in the same way that- and They have to. Yeah. And essentially, they already are providers of that backstop capital by way of government implicit guarantees, right? So it's going to get interesting in the positioning for a product like yourself in figuring out how to scale, really. How do you think about pricing? Is it different today than it, than it was when you started? Do you think still think it's going to evolve? And first of all, like describe for us like what pricing looks like for you in your mind for what you're providing. Yeah, so it's definitely been a journey with pricing and like discovery of how we should be priced. And I think there's a lot we've learned. We started from a pure consumption model. And so our unit was transactions and we would charge per transaction, X amount per transaction. It was a dollar per thousand transactions for a consumer. And then if it's business transactions, it was 20 per thousand. Just because the value that you deliver there is different and there's less volume, but each transaction is more meaningful. And as we started to evolve and also do more things, for example, a lot of people don't want to look at things per transaction basis. They want to understand whole account holders and histories. So we started to make some changes there. Where we are right now is it is still consumption-based pricing. We, we call them credits, not transactions. And credits can involve pages of documents. They can involve 
transactions per se or account holders, depending on the case. Each of them corresponds to different numbers of credits. And then the credits are packed into more SaaS-like tiers where you buy X amount per month and you can use all of them. You get a certain price per credit and then you roll to the next month and the ones that you haven't used can still be used. Or if you want to upgrade, you get a discount on a per credit basis. You can be on a different tier with a bigger volume and you get a discount. So we've tried to marry SaaS and consumption pricing because consumption is great when companies are growing and your customers are growing and you're growing with them, but it's also extremely unpredictable. And so I think this combination for now looks well for us and great for our customers because they're not paying for anything that they're not using. And yeah, it's been working out so far. I think as we move into different types of enterprise sales cycles, there will be a lot more bespoke deals and tweaks that you have to make depending on which part of the business you're adding value to, what's the ROI, etc. But we are very comfortable from where we stand right now in terms of, does this work for us? Yes. Does this work for our customers? Yes. Do the unit economics make sense? Yes. And at scale, they make even more sense, which is what we're excited about. That's awesome. That's great to hear. And to hear you talk about these concepts at an early stage in your development, I think speaks lengths as to your being applied to making this successful. Very few folks at these stages focus on anything but growing the top line. And I think thinking in terms of how that scales from a unit economic standpoint is critical, right? Because that's what allows you to weather the speed bumps along the way. Inevitably, there are some speed bumps. And so being able to have leeway on the lower part of the income statement, in other words, being really in touch with what it takes to generate gross margins is critical, right? Because that part, if you don't get right from the very beginning, your business will just not scale. And so many entrepreneurs have ended up in a situation where they literally thought about one thing, which was top line, and did not spend the time to try and understand how much it cost them to generate that dollar revenue, right? And so when you get that wrong, there's not much left beneath that line to play with and make some adjustments. So to close on our conversation, what are the things that you are most excited about in your space? You spend a lot of time in fintech. That's why we're having this conversation. But you're thinking about diversifying beyond that, obviously. But what are the things that you're most excited about in the space as you look at it? Yeah, I think it's been a tough year and a half, for sure, if not a bit longer for fintech. If you look at the public comps and what's happening in terms of funding rounds and companies struggling and all of that, it's definitely been problematic. However, the problems that fintechs are solving are some of the most important problems in society. They have to do with money and how people and companies access money, send money, get paid and so on and so forth. So these are extremely important problems and they're always going to be important and they are unsolved. And by solving them, you deliver a lot of real value. I think majority of fintech has been more fin than tech for a while. And that's natural because there's a lot of compliance, or a lot of regulation and the building blocks in terms of software are just getting together. I think this next stage, especially with what's going on with AI and machine learning and the maturity of some of that technology and the availability of the data is definitely going to be more software-driven. And 
that's exciting because software-driven means real scale, real impact, new solutions that couldn't exist before. So I'm truly excited about that and specifically transforming the whole. We started with the UI UX. Now you can access your bank with an app, which is fantastic. But transforming the back office so that you don't have to be charged fees on certain things that you shouldn't be charged on or so you can get a mortgage if you move to another country but have no credit history. That's going to be exciting to watch. So yeah, and also business models. I think fintech business models are tricky. There's only a certain amount of money you can make on interchange. And as we are discovering more software-like business models and software-like margins, it's definitely interesting because there's a lot more that you can do. I agree. And one area, I mean, it's great to hear you say this because one of my thesis is how payments are fundamentally going to emerge of the next decade and a half, looking a lot more like software business models, because we're going to get the ability to settle, to compose, make money fungible, tokenized in ways that was not possible in the past. And so that's going to bring the cost down to operating essentially what is a large distributed and decentralized payment infrastructure in ways that was not possible before. And so we're going to finally see that part of the world moving from technologies that in some cases, I mean, ACH is almost 50 years old, right? So to those types of infrastructures, to newer ones, what it does is right now, to your point about interchange, it's essentially a race to the bottom, especially in terms of the unit economics, which makes payment business models a little bit tricky to implement and manage over the long run, knowing that. If your cost of goods sold, the cost of running those networks is really manageable and trivial, then you start moving into business models that are essentially bands, tiers. Hey, I want to move a, a billion dollars next month. How much does it cost me? Right. And I want to know exactly how much is this going to cost me. And so in the way businesses are going to be geared towards that in terms of providing those capabilities could be very different from what we saw in the past. So I agree with you there. This has been a, a real pleasure. I think you've laid some really important principles throughout the conversation that I think would be very valuable for anyone wanting to get in the space and trying to replicate some of the successes that you've had as a business builder. I could see why you were able to convince investors because you have a very rational, very sound way of approaching a lot of the key problems. And back to where we were earlier in the conversation, it's about breadth, right? It's not about necessarily being super good at one thing. It's the ability to cover all these different topics that probably set you apart in the eyes of investors. So kudos to you for that and look forward to seeing you making more progress over the next year and keeping in touch. Thanks a lot. It was a great chat and I love the questions. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.